Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. We are back on a cadence that's really exciting uh, for Donato and I. Uh, we're actually delivering episodes every two weeks, as promised. So thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you've enjoyed what we've been doing for the last little bit. And we, this week, uh, we're going to introduce them in just a second, but we've got a great episode with a guest that that we've been circling for a very, very long time. And we were able to find time on the schedule to talk about a movie that I wasn't expecting expecting him to bring but that's okay we'll talk about it in a minute i want to check in at the top of this episode with my good friend and co-host matthew donato how are you doing donato i hear you're moving yeah we're working on it uh it is just living in la and rents being ridiculous and trying to navigate the fact that someone can raise your rent 12 percent in a single year when you think hey maybe we can get a few years out of this apartment on regular normal rent increases and why would that happen so we're having some fun. Would you describe your rent as being too damn high? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> as much as I don't want to be a meme, it is legitimate. You know, here at Certified Forgotten, we only bring you the best in decade old memes. So you're very, very welcome. And like, of course, I just saw Evil Dead Rise and you see this beautiful apartment that they complain about, or they talk about like not paying that much for. And I'm like, where does that exist? Can we can we get the Evil Dead Rise discount where the Necronomicon discount? I'll deal with the fucking book. I don't care. What would be uh, what would the price point for that apartment have to be for you to live with deadites? Are we talking like 700? Are we talking like 500? Where, where are you? Where do you make that trade off? Wait, am I living with the temptation of reading the book or are there actual deadites as roommates? You are living in, sorry uh, to our guests, we need to figure this out really quickly. Yeah. You are living in like one of the neighboring apartments and okay. there is a chance that your neighbors could come home one day and be possessed. Oh, like probably like 2000. Okay. If well, you, you get a two much bedroom, higher than I was expecting. Yeah, you get a two bedroom in LA down to $2,000, split that rent. Yeah, I'm good. Great. Um, Jesus, that's bleak as fuck. Uh, Donato, why don't you introduce our guest today? Anyway, getting back to the actual topic at hand. As Mr. Mongol said, we are bringing on someone that, I, you know, I have known for a very long time, shared some fantastic fest housing with no deadites, just us, which is bad enough. We don't need deadites in that house. Um, yeah, we are bringing in a film critic for Screen Anarchy, an Oscar-winning producer for Potentate Films, and programming consultant at Fantastic Fets itself, Mr. Josh Hurtado. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. I can't believe that all three of those things are just one person. Josh, that's incredible. It's been a very busy year. But yeah, I will say, just slight correction, it's a uh, theatrical consultant uh and distribution uh on the distribution team uh got with it Tremor. yeah so there we go okay well uh josh to start the episode off we'll talk about like your history and career blah blah blah. uh same question to you what would the discount on the high rise need to be for you to consider actually living um let's say new york chicago where you might need to move to i mean i don't know you and i are used to uh texas rents and that that number that <laughs> that donato just threw out kind of threw us for a loop um I would say under a grand, under okay. a grand, you know, uh, rents have gone up, uh, pretty significantly here in the last few years in, in Texas even. And, uh, under a grand, I would, I deal with that. Okay. Uh, so, Hey, look in, in a decade's time, uh, you know, uh, evil dead rise is going to be considered quite the commentary on housing prices and that's going to be an affordable. It's just going to be something you're going to have TikTok real estate influencers that are basically like, we do have, you know, the Necronomicon that sometimes kills some folks, but that's just sort of a quirk of the property, really. Oh, I could have the entire episode about that conversation. But Josh, 
I want to start by talking about you. So we, as we always do with our guests, the first question we like to ask is sort of the earliest, um, the earliest connection to the horror genre. And I know that strictly speaking, you know, some of the people that we bring on the show are like horror and only horror. And I know that your interests and your skills as both a writer, a programmer, a person in the industry um, are much more expansive than that. But for the sake of this, I'd like to kind of talk about when did you first find yourself connecting with the horror genre specifically? Um, I was a bit of a late bloomer, um, which having listened to a lot of your guests is a, is a fairly common story. Um, mm. I was terrified of horror movies when I was a kid, uh, very young. I was my very first horror related memory is of reading the monster at the end of this book. Um, the Sesame street book and being just absolutely riddled with anxiety. And, you know, it took me a while. One of my earliest memories uh, of a horror film, uh, and this is embarrassing, but I've told the story a bunch anyway, so I might as well get it out here, uh, was my father, who uh, loved movies of all kinds and um, didn't really show me horror movies. But he thought, you know, on a lark that he would show me when I was seven years old, um, Plan 9 from Outer Space, the Ed Wood film. Um, thinking, this is hilarious. My seven-year-old is going to see how poorly made this film is, and we'll both have a great laugh. I had nightmares for weeks. Mm. I built myself a little Lego gun that I took to bed with me, just in case the vampires came to my house. Um, and that put me off for a very long time. He also showed me RoboCop way too early, so that was a thing. I was, you know, I think I was seven when RoboCop came out, and uh, he brought home the tape from the from the video rental place. And as soon as the ED-209 shoots that guy up in the in the boardroom, mm -hmm. scarred, just absolutely scarred for years uh, after that. And my my connection to horror that where it became something that I craved didn't happen until after uh, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. I started reading Stephen King books. Um, you know, that was I mean, it was before Goosebumps. I didn't really read kids books uh, very often or, or YA stuff. Um, I went straight for Stephen King because the books were everywhere. I mean, you could find them. Everybody had them. There were billions of copies. And, you know, my my parents had copies of the books, so I would just go and read, uh, you know, The Stand uh, on a lark or whatever. So that's that's where it really started. And then I think this was also uh, part of your story as well, Monica. Was uh, my first like light bulb moment for horror uh, was seeing Evil Dead Two. Um, yeah. That's the one that really flipped the switch. It's like, oh, I'm getting like adrenaline. Like this is this is making me happy. I want more of this. And that was probably around 13 or so. When I was 13. Yeah, I, I think I've talked about this on the show before, but I remember, you know, I think there's for me there was always sort of like the tension of anticipating bad things happening to somebody was always the thing that scared me about. I remember being at the library as a kid and like flipping through. They, I don't know why the library had this, but they had like an illustrated collection. Like it was a, a, an illustrated history of um, uh, the well, Tales from the Crypt, the comic book series, Tales from the Crypt. And so I remember reading at like the age of eight, I was like flipping through this cover and each cover, if you remember your like old Tales from the Crypt issues, it's always somebody like at the point of death, right? It's like, it's somebody in a, a tank of water about to drown or somebody being pulled underground. And like that, those were such traumatizing for like form uh formative experiences for me because what scared me about horror was this notion of like being forced to watch as something terrible was happening to somebody 
And you're absolutely right. Evil Dead sort of unlocked it because there was it was the first time that I watched something that was using like the filmic elements of horror, but it was funny and like bad things were happening, but they weren't like, you know, they weren't punishing things. They were just like these silly, gross things that were happening to folks. So yeah, I, I always I always love it when I hear somebody else resonate on the, the Evil Dead too, because for me, I you know, I it was always I needed I needed the horror to not be like so personal. I didn't need to like watch somebody die. I just needed to watch somebody it was okay if they died, then they become a monster and I'm like, all right, now we're having a good time. Yeah. Um and that the the horror comedy thing really resonates with me. And I I know that it's not for everyone and they're like the hardcore horror heads who are ad- adamantly opposed to to comedy in their horror like mm-hmm. uh, i've never been one of those folks uh i'm a pretty forgiving of them actually it doesn't take much to, to entertain me um and so following that i i just went to you know the local video stores and started renting up everything with a cool cover and um and it was in the I think it was actually around that same time that I started to go see horror films in the theater. Um, I, when I was young, uh, I was, (laughs) I had a mustache when I was like 12. So I could go to R rated movies, no problem. So I would just go to see whatever I went to see, you know, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, when it came out in the theater. Um, You know, from dusk till dawn was, I think that was around the time I was 17, 16 or 17. Um, And, you know, just, went nuts on stuff. And it was the, at, by that point when I was uh, probably about a sophomore junior in high school was when the internet was starting to become a thing that most people had. Um, so that'd been about 95, 96. It was a very crude uh, version of the internet. Um, so much so that I was a webmaster. Uh, I learned HTML uh, in order to, to put my stamp on the world. Um, but what I did find was that there were a lot of people who were uh, writing about horror movies back then. You know, I couldn't afford Fangoria. Uh, I didn't, couldn't afford it until I was an adult and, and uh, was able to subscribe when I was probably 20. Um, but, you know, there were all these lists online, you know, 50 most disturbing films, all this kind of stuff. You know, at the beginning of the internet, there was the, uh, the notorious website rotten.com, which was just, all pictures of the most horrible, vile things. And I just, I was just curious. I just wanted to see, like, what does somebody with elephantiasis of the balls look like? Like, I wanted to see all of the things that the internet had to offer. Um, And it was going through those lists of like most disturbing films that I was like, oh, I can handle this. You know, it was kind of, it was a slingshot, you know, it was, I'd been pulled so far in the, in the, in the direction of being scared of, of these things and then realizing that they can't hurt me, that I just went nuts, you know. I, I like that aspect because as, you know, you have the draw to Monogle with Evil Dead 2 and stuff like that in the horror comedies, which I do share as well. Um, the late bloomer thing is something that I've always been a little self-conscious of as a horror fan. Because in my mind, every other horror fan and like every other horror fan you talk to is, oh, I had the brothers and sisters that showed me everything under the sun by the time I was four or five. And like mm-hmm. they had the base level just laid down by either parents or somebody else. And I, it, it's been nice in doing the podcast and hearing stories like yours that do align with mine of like waiting and not getting there till a little later in life. Uh, it, it's just really, you know, it's so funny to hear, though, that like it still took me a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, I, I did not have that kind of, you know, I guess courage. I said that curiosity until probably like college. But to go back really br- briefly to what terrified you, you know, playing non space and all that stuff. 
um, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes was on at like a family friend's house and I was very young. And of course, it's a comedy. Of course, it's not a straightforward horror movie. And that was one of the ones too. like same reaction. Like they put it on like, oh, haha, the kids will enjoy it. And I was like, turn this the fuck off. Like, absolutely not. Like, I was like, I have to leave. Yeah, I mean, and what's funny is that uh, my wife is is the kid that grew up watching horror movies way too young and, you know, watching all the nightmare movies and Friday the 13th movies with her parents when she was like four and five years old. And, you know, she explained it to me uh, in in the way that, you know, because a, a lot of the reasons that kids, well, I won't say kids, I'll say me. A lot of the reason that I wasn't watching those movies or that my parents wouldn't rent them um, even for themselves was that there was a lot of nudity in them. And, you know, they weren't incredibly, uh, scared of sexuality or anything it was just like i don't want to watch boobs on the couch with my kid you know i'm dealing with that now you know as a, as a father um but i guess <laughs> my my wife says that like sh- uh her parents weren't that concerned with that aspect of it because she's gonna have boobs like my wife is gonna have boobs so what's the problem with her seeing boobs and so she was just off to the races and part of uh one of the fun parts about uh our relationship over the last 10 years is I'm getting caught up on all the stuff I missed when I was a kid that she watched, you know? And so it's always, it's always a joy when I'm able to introduce her to something from a time where she would have been watching those films that I've seen first, because I feel like I've won a prize, you know, like I, I, I finally got one. Uh, this happened with step, the stepfather uh, just last weekend. She had never seen the stepfather mm-hmm. and I was just so excited to show it to her. Um, but yeah, it's uh it's been, sort of a, a for me since since those early days and you know finding the internet and finding all these lists it's been like a, a race to the the furthest edges of cinema for me you know trying to trying to get out and and find just the wildest shit i possibly can um and that's a lot of that wild shit happens in horror movies you know and so that's that's one of the things that draws me to them uh, because that's a lot of where the creativity is and i know that a lot of people that are are familiar with your criticism familiar certainly with your work in the industry probably know you best as a South Asian expert, as somebody who follows South Asian cinema trends, um, knows personally a lot of filmmakers, a lot of talent that are coming out of that part of the world. And I'm kind of curious how, how that and, and horror, cause you know, starting with like film at a, at a young age, um, you know, I think for, especially for a lot of people embracing international cinema, embracing non-English language cinema is, is something that comes later. It's, it's such a big hurdle because it just feels so far and, different from what you're it's not what your friends are talking about like you know for most of us we're not in middle school and people are like yo did you see p2 or whatever like i can't believe that movie so i'm curious how you began to sort of focus and specialize in south asian cinema in addition to what you were discovering on your own um here domestically well it 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 grew out of that same curiosity uh and and the sort of looking at trying to look under rocks you know uh, for films. And what I realized was, you know, just like a lot of people who are my age, but a few years older than you guys, not much. Um, a lot of people my age uh, sort of came up when Hong Kong cinema, Korean cinema, Japanese cinema were starting to make marks in the States, Korean, especially uh, in the early 2000s with Old Boy and JSA and, and things like that. And so I was watching all those things uh, uh, as often as I could. And, you know, Asian cinema in particular was very interesting for me. Um, and then one day I just kind of realized, like, I've seen films from Indonesia and the Philippines and South Korea and Hong Kong and all these places, and I've never seen uh, an Indian film. Like, it seems odd. It's a huge country. 
everybody knows that India makes movies. Like everyone has their own preconceived notions of what Indian movies are. And I was like, well, why don't I just give it a shot? And the first one I actually saw uh, was after reading an article on the site that I have written for for a while before I was uh, with them about an Indian remake of Old Boy called Zinda. Um, so I was like, cool, I can rent it through Netflix. They'll send me a disc. I'll see it. And that one didn't really make a mark. It's it's a sort of it's pretty generic remake. You know, instead of 15 days, it's 14 days. There's like a lot of little tiny things to get around legal concerns. Um, but then, uh, like a couple years later, I decided to give it another shot and just absolutely fell in love. The, one of the first films that I saw was a movie called Om Shanti Om, uh, by a director named Farah Khan, uh, which is just this big boisterous musical revenge action, uh, everything film. Um, it's very, very colorful. Uh, you know, the, the acting is huge and I know you guys have seen triple R now, so you kind of get the, the, the vibe that, that things are. Uh, from India aspire to in some cases. And this is what we call a masala film. It's a very big multi-genre film. Um, and I just, I've watched it and I fell in love and I was like, I need to watch more movies like this. And so I started to, you know, rent up what I could from, from Netflix. Cause you know, back then DVDs were pretty easy to find. Um, and Netflix's DVD catalog was a lot deeper than, than their streaming catalog ever was. And, uh, so I did that for a few years. And then I, uh, at some point in the next couple of years, realized that I can go see these films in theaters here because it, this would have been in 2008, 2009. Um, and where I live in Dallas is there's a huge Indian population and it's always been serviced by, you know, ethnic theaters, uh, by Indian theaters here. Uh, I just didn't know they were there until 2008. And so I started going to see the movies in theaters. And then I was like, uh, you know, still curious. And I can't remember why I did this, but I ended up going into an Indian grocer for something. I probably just needed to get a Coke or whatever to, to finish my day out. And the Indian grocer had uh, rentals. They had like a big wall of rentals. Uh, and I was like, oh, I didn't know this was a thing. Like, I didn't know I could go and rent Indian movies uh, in Indian grocers. And then came to realize that every Indian grocer had these uh, rentals because India is a film crazy country. And it's one of the things that they're, uh, even as they move far away from their homeland, they have this, this connection to home. And so, you know, I would just go in there. I wouldn't rent because, I mean, if you, you guys on the podcast can't see it, but behind me, there's a big shelf of discs. I have a lot of discs. Uh, so I would just buy things because they would sell them for whatever, four or $5 for a DVD. I would read the back of the cover and see if it looked fine and just went nuts. Um, and so after watching, you know, a couple hundred of them over the course of a few years, uh, I, I started to, to understand this world and, and wonder why nobody else was paying any attention to it. And so that, you know, led into my writing with Screen Anarchy or, or Twitch Film at the time. Uh, it led into uh, the work with Fantastic Fest and eventually is, is led here to the work with, with Potentate Films and uh, SS Rajamoli. So is the, is the through line then, as I'm kind of thinking about our conversation about horror and about Indian cinema, um, you mentioned Masala Film, which thankfully is, is a term that I was taught in school. Um, I had a very, very good international cinema uh, professor who who spent really it was a day it's not enough but a day on um, Indian cinema 
Um, is, is maximalist cinema kind of the through line there for you when you're talking about like, you know, purveying the corners of the internet, seeing things that are, that are, you know, cause Masala's musicals and action sequences and dance numbers. It's, it's the most it's, it's RRR mm-hmm. is the purest distillation of what Americans would think of as Masala cinema is so horror Indian cinema. Is it the notion of like all of these like incredibly filmic, incredibly maximalist things? That's certainly a draw for me. Um, I, I like when people take big swings. Um, whether they're working with, you know, a couple hundred bucks or $72 million, like they were with triple R, um, big swings are always going to win points in my book, even if they don't necessarily land. Um, when it comes to horror, uh, in, in India, there, there had been, and I am still fairly new at like going backwards in, in Indian film, just because there's so much of it releasing every year. Uh, if, if you don't know, India, uh, releases somewhere in the neighborhood of 1800 films a year. And that's across dozens of languages. Um, it's a, it's a huge industry. And so it's intimidating to, to try and like dip your toe in. Um, but you know, in the eighties, uh, India had a very, uh, pretty, I wouldn't say successful, but, a uh, a, a horror, um, industry that was consistently churning out mostly B grade films, um, and it had kind of died out. Uh, in, in recent years, there's not a ton of horror, uh, but even the stuff that there is sometimes can be in that same masala vein. So, for example, there's a film uh, called Street, which is a horror comedy that came out a couple of years ago. It was quite good. There's another one. It's part of a trilogy. I forget the middle one, but there's a, or no, the, the last one was called Bedia, which is another, um, I think they're just kind of thematically linked. I don't think they're actually like a proper trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do, they have songs and dances, they have lots of comedy, all that kind of stuff goes in there. There's not a whole lot of straight, uh, horror because that's just not in, you know, the Indian film industry's, you know, DNA for the most part. When it does happen, like something like Tumbad, which we did at Fantastic Fest a few years ago, that was great. But even then, um, you know, you have in that movie, uh, cool looking monsters. There's a, a, a rubber monster at the very beginning, like the, the grandmother rubber monster thing. That's uh, it's very much a throwback to the eighties style. Um, one of my favorite films, which was, I almost made you guys watch it for this, but it's two hours and 45 minutes. So I decided to have pity on you. Um, it's called Kanchana, which is a, it's a comedy horror action musical about a transgender reincarnated ghost possessing uh one of india's best dancers um it's it's a it's a it's pretty pretty special thing and i've shown it to a couple of people and you either love it or you absolutely hate it but you can't forget it um when we did the uh the 2016 indian sidebar uh at fantastic fest i couldn't get that film uh to play i would have loved it uh, to put Mm. that in front of an audience but I did manage to get one of the songs, like the very first song in the film is a song called Nilla Nilla, which is, <laughs> it's a, it's a, this guy, uh, his name is uh, Lawrence is the, is the choreographer, writer, actor, producer, like multi-hyphenate. And he's an amazing dancer, but he has this, this crew of dancers that he brings with him to every film that are all disabled folks. So, uh, you're looking at it and it's just like, what is happening? But it's just so amazing to see, uh, you know, something new. Like I said, big swings, he's, he's swinging for the fences. And, uh, there are, that movie has 
that. It has, you know, romantic numbers. It has people being beheaded. Uh, it has this, this transgender ghost. It's surprisingly progressive considering it's a film from India from 2011 um, that deals with, you know, trans rights, uh, essentially, um, at a time before we were dealing with trans rights, you know, mm-hmm. in, in any substantive way. Um, and so having those, those big swings, it, it's one of the things that, that really draws me to India because you can do that in a mainstream setting there. And that film was actually really successful. And if you watch it, it is completely insane um, that a film that does all the things that film does uh, was, was significantly successful. Well, I think, and like, that's why we talk about international cinema so much. And I think that's why we talk about trying things and trying new types of movies, because, you know, American studios, it, it, as much as you have the Fast and Furious and like, yes, people do take swings here. I don't want to like say, oh, American cinema is just, you know, boilerplate down to the same template now across the, across the board. But in the same breath, like, yeah, when you do see one of those Masala movies, it is a wholly new experience. Like there is a reason why RRR took off and there's a reason why we keep going to those. And like uh, mentioning Tumbad, like I love that movie so much. And I saw it at Fantastic Fest that year. And it's always a little frustrating though, because like with distribution rights internationally are such a mess. And of course, like, you know, this better than anyone being on the distro side in a certain sense. Um, but yeah, like I'll be like, Oh, Tumbad, like you, everyone has to see this movie. And then I'm like, cool. When's it actually coming out? Then like a year goes by and it's like, cool this hasn't come yet out yet i'll keep recommending it but i don't know when it's gonna hit and then it just drops on like you know i this one specifically dropped on amazon prime without any fanfare and it just kind of existed there like it's it's hard you know it's that hard battle of like you have no idea like this movie is so good like the cinematography could have won like it could have should have been like nominated for an oscar that year but you know it it does that route it doesn't get the big distro it doesn't get the big push and then it goes to amazon prime and every, you know, rightfully in a certain sense, every American's like, well, it can't be that good if it didn't get a distribution and just ended up on a streamer. And yeah, like that is the frustrating part of it. With India in particular, it's very challenging because, uh, like I said, the films, for the most part, any major blockbuster or big budget movie coming out of India is going to release in American cinemas. Um, it did 15 years ago when I started to go see them. It does that. That reach has greatly expanded uh, over the last five years, where you know every AMC, every Cinemark, every Regal has at least one or two screens dedicated to Indian films, and so there's, and this is what we did with Triple R. Is you know when Triple R released, it released in March of last year. Uh, I went to see it. Obviously, a few other folks that I'd sort of prepped for the filmmaker um, went to see it because I I've been working with a filmmaker since I programmed his film Ega at Fantastic Fest in 2013. And, you know, having shown that film, people sort of picked up this name. And then uh, so we had a few people who went to go see it based on uh, kind of having seen Iga and having seen this next two films, the Bahubali films, and then going to see Triple R because they know that Rajamouli is a person they want to go see a film from, but they don't advertise. Um, so that's that's what we did. Like we did marketing. Um, and that's one thing that Indian films have never done uh I would say really, but they have never done marketing outside of their, their core audience uh, or even outside of India proper. Um, So you won't see trailers for Indian films in front of mainstream American films in general. You won't see, you know, ads in papers or banner ads or any of that kind of stuff uh, that you would see for any other film because they do all that stuff in India and all the people that live here who are going to see those films, uh, Indian uh, immigrants that are living out here, 
They just follow those news. They follow those trailers, you know, and so they know what's coming, but nobody else does. Um, and with, with Tumbad, for example, Tumbad didn't release in, in, in theaters in the US. Um, it released in theaters uh, a couple of weeks after we showed it at Fantastic Fest in India. And then, like you said, it went to Amazon Prime. Uh, Jalikatu, uh, same thing. Jalikatu, we showed in, uh, what was that, 2019? And, uh, and that film played in theaters a couple of weeks after we showed it uh, at Fantastic Fest. Almost nobody knew it was there. It went to Amazon Prime again. Uh, and with that one, I was trying very hard to, you know, I've been working, trying to get that filmmaker's uh, work seen outside of his core audience for, by that point, it had been four or five years um, because I'd seen a bunch of his earlier stuff. And I was like, this guy's going to be something like he's going to, he's going to do something that people are going to love. Uh, Jalikatu is not even my favorite film of his. It's great. Um, but like there's the problem is that someone like, like Lee Jopalisari who did Jalikatu is a mainstream filmmaker in his, you know, part of India. And so the idea of his films going to festivals was somewhat foreign uh, to everyone. And tr- I just, I was, there was just an article that I was interviewed for that came out a couple of days ago about, you know, the challenge of, of sharing Indian films outside of India with a non-Indian audience because they're not viewed as festival films. Like Triple R, they don't view that as a, as a festival film, you know? And it didn't play at any festivals until we showed it at Beyond Fest, um, which happened six months after the release, which is nuts. Um, and can you, so, can yeah, you put that, Josh, can you put that into for, for folks that are visualizing that may not be as from, can you name like an American, like if an American film were to play at like a regional film festival in India, like what is sort of the, the parallel or the, the like same kind of tier in terms of like blockbuster movies that, that aren't viewed as a festival film? What would you compare that to in terms of going the other way? I mean, it would be like something like a Fast and the Furious movie or a, or a Top Gun Maverick playing in a film festival in other parts of the world. You know, that kind of thing only happens really with something like uh, like Cannes. Cannes does big premieres every year. Like there's always some big movie where you're like, why is this playing at the Cannes Film Festival? You know, some new Pixar thing or whatever it might be. Right. Um, but that's kind of like a one-off. It's a thing to like celebrate the premiere and everyone gets to go and hang out in the sun and it's it's wonderful and beautiful. Um but I've, I've been turned down a lot of times when I'm trying to program things because they're just like, why are you calling me? My movie already made $14 million or whatever it might be. Like, I don't need you. Um, and I'm like, well, I want to show people your movie. And it's, it's, it's a very frustrating uh, position to be in a lot of the time. Yeah, because it's like, why don't you want more dollars? <laughs> you can have more dollars. Exactly. Then I, I want to wrap up this conversation. We can talk about the film, but I want to ask... Um, a sort of a temperature check. You know, I, I think a lot of people, New York Times, everybody was writing about RRR, Triple R. Um, I like RRR better, I'm going to use that one. Uh, as uh, sort of a watermark, watershed film um, for Indian cinema in the United States. And, and do you feel like, as somebody who's been programming for a decade that has been working on this, do you feel like we're starting to catch up? Or do you think that there's always going to be you know, the, the, what is it? The five inch barrier, the 10 inch barrier, whatever. Um, do you, do you think that there, there are just cultural um, differences that are going to prevent a mainstream American audiences from ever regarding blockbusters in India as, as blockbusters here? I mean, I think it's going to be a, a, a matter of, of gaining inches at a time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like, like on a football, in a football game, you know, we're, we're not going to 
we're not going to get touchdowns every single time. I've said this, uh, you know, triple R is, it's a, it's a unicorn. Like it is, it's a, it's a wonderful film that did exactly what it was supposed to do. People picked up on it, but it doesn't mean that that's going to be the same thing for every Indian film or even any other Indian film. Like we don't know what will happen. Like there's, you know, it's it, the comparison has been made and I think it's apt to something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon uh, 20 years ago, where it, it seemed like, oh, well now the world's ready for, you know, for this cinema. And then it wasn't like, there have been a couple of minor things that have popped up, you know, like the promise or, or, or things like that, that have happened over the last decade, but there hasn't been something of that magnitude since then coming out of there. And you know, I'm, I'm ready to fight for it. You know, I'm ready to go in and, and, and do some of the work. And, you know, part of the thing is, like I said, there needs to be someone there to curate. There needs to be someone there to say, okay, well, there are four Indian films in your theater this week. Which one should you go see? Or are there nothing, is there nothing in the cinema this week that's worth your time? You know, and that's, that's part of the job of a programmer also. It's, it's, it's deciding and figuring out which of the films are going to work for an audience. There are things that I absolutely adore that I know would not work uh, for Fantastic Fest, or I know would not work as a release for potentate films. Um, it's about knowing your audience and, and, and understanding how the marketing works. Well, I want to, I, I will plug you at the end of the show, but I want to plug you right now to say that if you don't follow Josh on social media, um, I've gotten some incredible um, recommended, like Cargo is a film that I love to pieces. I, I only know that film because it got you know, released into the quagmire of Netflix, you know, international releases, which means you know, might as well not be released at all. Um, but I only know that one because you beat the drum about it. And specifically we're like, Hey Matt, I know your taste. I think this is something you'd be into. So you should follow Josh. If the conversation we just had about Indian cinema is interesting to you, if you are like many of us that are like, I know a little, I'd like to learn more. I'd like to dive in a bit more. Um, following you on social media is a good way to start because you do highlight what comes out. And especially if you live in Texas um, or other major metropolitan areas, there's a decent amount of Indian releases that are happening every week. And so the Cinemark down by me usually has two or three at any given time. So um, knowing what's worth uh, for a, a normal moviegoer, knowing what's going to be accessible, approachable that you might want to follow up on, Josh is your guy, I think. Well, thank you. I, 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 I talk about him a lot, so... And now for something completely different. <laughs> we just had a really great conversation about the challenges of international film distribution. And we are going to pivot and, and talk about a piece of international cinema and maximalist cinema. And I think those are probably the only two pieces I will carry over into our next conversation. So when we come back, it's time to talk about Father's Day. We'll be right back. Oh, hello, Certified Forgotten listeners. It's bumper time, and it's me, Matt Donato, one of your co-hosts for Certified Forgotten. There is no monocle this week because I am editing this episode very late. I have a flight to Vegas in less than two hours, and I just got to read some bumpers off myself. Solo duties this time. Let's get to the questions. Please excuse me because I don't know who sent what bumper using the new Google Forms that we have, so uh, I'm just going to read them off, and I think this first one is Ian. 
So if it is you, Ian, I apologize. If it is someone else, I also apologize. In any case, first question, what are you listening to at the moment? What new bands have got your interest? So me, Matt Donato, is listening to a lot of Electric Callboy right now. Just one of my favorite bands out there. It's best described as Eurovision Party Metal. Uh, I just saw Ailstorm in concert, so some pirate metal is in my mix right now. But newer stuff that has me excited is a band called Red Hook, a, let's say, harder alternative band that just, they rock hard. I, I don't know how else to say it. They're everything I want. They bring a lot of energy. They bring a lot of, like, modern takes, but still has that good alt-rock vibe. Uh, another band, which is kind of on the sadder note because they just broke up this year, is uh, Dollskin, which is really just a pink, uh, kick-ass punky girl band, and they put their last song out last month, so they are done for the moment. I really wish they kept going, but yeah, check out Dollskin. They are very good. Another band that I've listened to for a while is Enter Shikari, and they just have a new album out called A Kiss for the Whole World, and it is just... It's feel-good metal and, like, feel-good party metal especially, like, that stuff you can put on and just, like, vibe with and just, like, reach a high. It's not, like, angry metal. So, yeah, that's, that's a lot of what's in my uh, in my mix right now. Oh, and also the Dirty Nail. It's just, like, gir- stuff I'd put on during a barbecue. So I really like the Dirty Nail right now, and they're releasing some new stuff. So check them out as well. Okay, and on to question number two. I don't know who sent this as well. We're going to figure this out for next time so I can give proper <laughs> proper credit. But it is a wonderful question. If you could be on any reality series, which would you choose? I'd like to take a trip to Flavortown on Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives with Guy Fieri. Uh, number one, I would too. I really need to say how much I love Guy Fieri, and I love like food shows and cooking shows myself. So honestly, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives would be on my list, but also out there is The Floor is Lava. And you know, growing up as a huge Legends of the Hidden Temple fan, so this is like the next step for me now in my adulthood. Like I want to be on uh floor is lava so incredibly bad and i know where they film too so like <laughs> i don't know maybe i'm just gonna like go to the studios one day when i hear they're filming the next season and see if i can get in but uh i think those are my two or just put me on any cooking competition show where i can be a judge uh epic mealtime used to have one on youtube and that would be my vibe so hard don't put me on one of like the hoity-toity ones put me on like an epic mealtime kind of uh food competition show where i can judge it that's that's in my heart that's where i want to be but uh, yeah, that is our bumper session for this episode. And let's get back to our wonderful discussion on, well, Father's Day. Okay, welcome back. So when we invited Josh on the show, um, I thought for sure, 100%, I thought for sure he was going to bring a piece of underseen international cinema to us. And technically he did. He brought us Father's Day, which is the 2011, 2011 film by Canadian answer to trauma entertainment i guess is what you call them astron six um it is we'll talk about that that's that's what the guest is here for um you know usually i write like an introduction and it's smart and it details what happens in the film and it gives you like a little bit of a taste but leaves you wanting more i don't know man (laughs) i don't i don't i don't know that there's any kind of introduction here that could do this justice so i'll just say um, it's a revenge story. There's a character named Fuckman. Um, Hell is involved. Lloyd Kaufman has a, a small role. Yada, yada, yada. 
let's leave it there. We're going to talk about the different elements of the story. It'll come out kind of in the wash, but um, let's start like we always do by asking our guest, Josh, all of these films that you could have brought. I, I don't think that this is at all an inappropriate certified forgotten title. I want to start there, but I was surprised that you picked this one instead of um, maybe something that, that again is more in line with the conversation we just had. So I'd love to know what made father's day and the thing you wanted to bring to us. Uh, I adore Astron six. Uh, I, was first uh, exposed to them through through Twitch Film, uh, the site that I again write write for. Uh, that's Screen Anarchy now. Um, before I was writing for them in two thousand eight with a trailer uh, called Laser Ghosts Two: Return to Laser Cove, um, which is just this fantastic little uh, fake trailer send up of you know sci fi horror. And from there, uh, I just I went on YouTube to find anything I could from, from them. And uh, Father's Day is, is one that as I was looking through uh, the uh, Rotten Tomatoes things, I had a few things I was juggling and I was looking mm-hmm. through there and they, they just made it. Uh, uh, Father's Day just makes it for the criteria. Um, and I was like, that's wild because I remember when it came out, people talking about it a bit, like there was chatter. So why are there so few reviews on Rotten Tomatoes? And I, you've uh, you've touched on this at, at different points in the podcast uh, on previous shows, but I think it's just the the state of of Rotten Tomatoes and who they considered to be you know appropriate RT certified uh, critics and and outlets was very different in 2012. Um, and so I think my reviews on there um, from back then. Uh, but there, there weren't a lot. And I went on this morning uh, just to sort of check and see, you know, look at other reviews. And when I Googled reviews, it was all like teeny tiny blogs. Uh, mm-hmm. Not a whole lot of, of, of major outlets, uh, apart from Variety. I think Variety gets a review up. Um, and I was just, you know, it was this or Manborg. You know, I think uh, Manborg is, it's less horror. I think it probably still would have fit the podcast. Um, but uh, this is straight up horror i think uh it's kind of a revenge thriller thing but it's there's like you said they go to hell and there's a lot of very gruesome uh things happening on screen and i just i want to celebrate that i want to celebrate astron six uh with this repulsive uh uh blatantly offensive uh disgusting uh gem of a film so let me do, let me offer real quick. Cause I kind of did like the joking, like, I don't know how to describe this lead in, but to the point of you bringing this, Josh, I want to note that there are a lot of uh, filmmakers, distribution companies, whatever, that I feel like sort of capitalized on the grindhouse revival, right? Like Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, you know, kind of engendering all this enthusiasm for like low budget 1980s style genre films, slashers, DIY, like, you know, obvious fake dummies and fake body parts kind of things. I think there's a lot of people that sort of came up in that wave. Um, and I would say, I joke about Astron 6 being Troma of the North, but I think that they have proven themselves to be a company that their creativity and versatility goes far beyond the boundaries of just like, oh, they are a grindhouse imitator. Um, because they made The Void, which is a, a film that I genuinely love. And I don't want to step on uh, you here, Donato, but they made Psycho Gorman, which is at this point, Matthew Donato's entire fucking personality. So I, it, it, they are a really fascinating, I guess, like a cooperative, a collection of, of filmmakers that that move and, and work together. And I think that that makes something like Father's Day, it's sort of like, yes, is it a grindhouse? Is it like playing in the same side of the pool as like all this other stuff? Is it exploitative? And is it like shocking for shock value? It is, 
But it's also more than that. And it's more than that, both in what we're looking at in the film. And it's also more than that in hindsight with like the entire overall body of work. Um, Donata, you're, you're nodding a lot right now. I know that I'm hitting on some points you feel very strongly about. So I want to let you kind of like weigh in on the Astron 6-ness of it all. Yeah, I mean, that like that's where I was going to kind of go with it. Like number one to me, to me, they feel a lot closer to five second films or a collective like that um where you know we know what trauma does and we know what trauma puts forth and they have a very certain vibe and if you watch the manborgs and their other stuff outside of father's day they feel more in tune with the satirical comedy aspects of like watching the editor is a straight send up to giallo and things of that nature and a satire on it in the way that dude bro party massacre is a satire slasher genre and sorority slashers um so i feel like there's I feel like there's a little more intelligence into what they do uh, that is not as well shown in Father's Day, let's say. I think their stuff is a little better elsewhere for that reason. But that's not to say, like, you know, this is, Monica, you just said, like, this collective went on to do things. And I think I think they disbanded before they did The Void, like, disbanded, quote unquote, like, to say they weren't Astron Sticks. Like, that was uh, Stephen Kazansky. Uh, doing the void that was him doing psycho Gorman and bringing obviously like adam brooks and the people that he knows along mm-hmm. because why wouldn't you bring your friends along for the ride so but it, no i i adore what they do in the guerrilla filmmaking just the going out and making insane maximalist minimal budget films and seeing their vision through all the way like you can tell how they got from something like manborg to psycho Gorman. like you can tell the story the whole way because those effects are always so cool going through they just do practical themselves. So I am, it, this is always my kind of movie. Like I'm still into Father's Day. Don't get me wrong. Like what they're doing is very much what they're doing, but also like touching on the Rotten Tomatoes aspect of it too. Like Josh was talking about it, It's most critics, not only we're going to ignore horror at the time, but most critics were going to ignore minimal budget, like literally zero budget kind of films. Uh, and, you know, as much as I might've, as much as I'm off the trauma bandwagon uh, and I have been for a little bit at this point, that doesn't negate the fact that they have given money to filmmakers to make movies like Father's Day. And like, I think at this point, especially my favorite trauma movies are the ones like Father's Day, Mutant Blast, which we covered on the podcast, uh, things that trauma has gotten involved with on a production basis. And Lloyd saying, put me in your movie and, you know, cool. You get your cameo, do your thing over here. But there's still a filmmaker putting their vision through. And as much as it's through the trauma machine, it, it still works to like speak to their voice. Josh, you sent over um, a little bit of recommended reading before uh, today's episode. I feel like this is probably a good place, talking about trauma, talking about Astron 6 and everything, for you to kind of hit on um, the document that you sent over. And I know you're not going to read it in its entirety, but maybe share some of the highlights here. Well, I mean, so the the thing about, and like like Donato was saying, the thing about trauma is if they're going to give you money, then they're, you know, and this is this, not just trauma. It's the case with any financer or any production house. If they're going to give you money, they want to know what they're getting. Uh, and so that goes through script approval. They have to send over, you know, all their stuff. This movie was made for $10,000, which if you watch it is bananas, like that they did all these things with $10,000. But uh, I was uh, able to, uh, I, I was friendly with some of the Astron 6 guys uh, a, a while ago when this was uh, doing the festival rounds and in, in, uh, in the run-up to the, the home video release. And uh, they were frustrated with with trauma because there were some things that were happening behind the scenes that weren't exactly to their benefit. They didn't feel like the film was being promoted 
the way that it should have been um, and uh, managed to, to get a look at some of the script notes um, that were, that were sent over for, for, uh, for Father's Day for a very early draft from, from Troma. And they are just wild. Like it, it, the things, if you've seen the film, you know that every, every five seconds, there is something just absolutely brutally repulsive happening. Uh, whether it's a needle in a dick, a, a, lots of dick violence. Yeah. Lots of dick violence. Um, there's, you know, uh, the offensive uh, caricatures of, of characters. They are, they are, quote unquote characters, but they are just really caricatures of, of all these people. And the fact that uh, the, in the script notes, every single thing that you see that happens in Father's Day, the proper final film is like pulled back. Like it's, it's about, it's about 20% as offensive as someone as, as trauma thought that it could be. And like, that's what they were going for. Um, I, it's, it's, it's it's crazy to say that a film like Father's Day is a compromised, you know, somewhat compromised version or of of Astron Six's vision because for the first time they were working with someone else's money. You know, they made Manborg for a thousand bucks because they did it all themselves. You know, and to get ten thousand dollars from Troma was a boon because you know someone's paying us to make a movie that we want to make. But at the same time, you know, there are those weird little things where it's you know they have to make. Uh, sacrifices on on what they think the film should be um, because they are now beholden to someone else uh, and and to beholden to to production house um, it was all very messy uh, and in fact there is still a trailer uh, for a behind the scenes doc called no sleep no surrender that never actually got released and apparently now is uh, the story is that it's somewhere stuck on a corrupted hard drive and so it can't be released because the whole the full edit of it is gone um but even in the trailer you can see you know questionable dealings uh going on with with trauma uh and the astron 16 it's not surprising that they didn't go back to trauma to to do the editor i'll say that yeah that that's a very interesting document and makes me uh, again like you know falling out of love with it you know when i was first getting into horror you, i like the schlock the splatter all that stuff i still mm -hmm. rewatch poultry guys like there still are plenty of trauma movies they do enjoy mm -hmm. but you know especially watching something like shakespeare shitstorm i now clearly see how we got from again the toxic avenger to shakespeare shitstorm and the trauma track and it's like wow maybe maybe it's nice not to know the behind the scenes stuff sometimes <laughs> Sometimes, and you know, with, with Lloyd uh, Kaufman, there's, I could not possibly take away the fact that he's made a tremendous impact on independent cinema uh, in this country. Just from, from Toxic Avenger forward, Trump has been, on the whole, a force for good in, in indie cinema and independent horror. But at the same time, like, they've created this thing and there's sort of a, uh, there's a dichotomy among uh, horror fans, I feel, that's like, do you like trauma films or do you dislike trauma films like in general? And I find myself firmly on the, I'm not really interested in all that um, uh, side of the fence. Uh, and which makes it just crazy to me that, that, uh, that this film is still as successful as it is, even with the compromises that had to be made. I, legit real story. I went on a date like two months ago at this point, but like that, was a point of contention. It was very much like, a, where do you stand on the Lloyd Kaufman thing? 
and mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, cool. <laughs> like that, that is a true thing. I feel like that has to be representative of dating in Los Angeles because I don't feel like that's, <laughs> yeah, a, that's a first date question that comes up in any other city in America. Well, it just starts showing pictures and stuff. And I was just like, oh, you're, you're very pro this. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. This movie was a lot um, for me. <laughs> I think that, um, listen, if you listen to the podcast, you know, there are Donato movies and there are Monocle movies, right? And this is, this is definitely a Donato movie. Um, and my wife was coming down the stairs during the opening scene and was like, what? And I was like, duh, 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 duh. like, I knew what I signed up for. You need to go back upstairs, take the dog for a walk. Um, I will say that I can appreciate the creativity, um, that is on display for most of the film. The humor got me in a couple of key places. Like there, there's a line when a character opens a coffin and it's just a bunch of guns and the, the, twink who's the other character says i bet you're sad your dad's not in there huh and like i laughed out loud so like i don't want to downplay that this movie wasn't effective to me also the entire sequence in hell is just like how you do that for a whole movie for ten thousand dollars let alone how you create sort of like this stop motion hellscape for less than that money there's a lot of incredible creativity on here but this is also this is the kind of thing that sort of pushes that the that like can i appreciate can i enjoy dichotomy here because you know i've seen a lot I've seen a lot of films that fall into this like this kind of orbit right I've seen like movies like Thanks Killing and other stuff that are sort of playing with the like the DIY budget the exploitation the like goopiness for the sake of goopiness and it's not really my cup of tea but the people that made Thanks Killing also made uh, The Headhunter which is a fucking incredible film um I The Void and some of the other stuff like Psycho Gorman is a really really so I think part of the I've always felt that movies like this like Father's Day are enjoyable almost on like a metagame level because you're enjoying what you're the narrative of what you're seeing on the screen. And that's, that's, that's fun. But even if you're not into that, you're aware of the labor of love and the creativity and the effort that's going into it. And you can't help. Like, I don't think about fuck. I don't know the Russo brothers when I'm watching like a, you know, a Marvel movie, I think about the DIY team when I'm watching something like father's day and probably how hard it was to get what ends up on screen that like that notion for, flitters through my head on and off throughout the movie is like oh that must have been a pain in the ass oh like there's a car chase that whole car chase must have been a fucking pain in the ass because there ain't no say there's no stuntmen there's no they're just doing everything at like 15 miles an hour but you can still get hurt at 50 miles an hour so that was my i wanted to, to highlight because i know donato we eventually get to a point where we watch something like this he's like monogle what did you think i wanted to, to anchor and put it out there that those are the sort of things that i grapple with when i watch something like this but some of those jokes, they've really fucking landed for me. The whole maple syrup thing in the woods. <laughs> it's yeah. not a maple tree. <laughs> what was I making tree. syrup with? Like, those are the little things that work. But I, I, I knew coming in what you were like, when Josh said he's like this, we're doing Father's Day. I was like, oh, yeah, no, I, I can't wait to see Monica's reaction to this because I had seen it prior a while ago. I hadn't rewatched it. And the rewatch was very much a reminder of like, mm-hmm. not a monocle movie. No, this is great. This is great. <laughs> How does this land in your household, Josh? Is this uh, across the board for all y'all? Um, my my wife loves it. I haven't shown my son because, of course, he is he may be eighteen, but no one's old enough for this movie. Correct. Um, but yeah, my my wife has a very similar taste to mine. So, and this is it's it's the kind of thing I think a lot of people do, especially horror fans. Uh, when you first start dating someone, you have to like put them through you know their the tests. Like, yes. I'm going to be doing this with my life. Are you going to be able to hang with this? And like, this was, this was an early one, you know, 
uh, a Serbian film was an early one. Like those where you're just kind of like saying, okay, I'm going to, I am this person. Like this person is me who watches these movies on right. purpose, you know? And, uh, and she's, she's right there with me, uh, which is a, a lovely thing. And it's a reason we've been happily married for as long as we have. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a favorite in, in the Hurtado house. So talk to me how you, um, I guess how you feel. Cause Donato, I kind of weighing in a little bit. Like I know from our pre-conversation that this is kind of, sounds like it's right up your jam, you know, the darkest corners of the internet brought to life on screen kind of vibes. But, um, you know, I, I can imagine you probably had the opportunity to introduce this movie to a lot of people over the years. I'm kind of curious how it's played, um, with folks that are, that are more like us that are, that are not like us. Cause this is the kind of thing where like, I almost want to make people watch it just so that I can spend the entire movie looking at them. Right. And like, you know, no, exactly. As you described with your wife, like, are we still, are we still cool after this? Did I learn something about you? Did you learn something about me? Yeah. I mean, I, I recommend it all the time because I love it so much, but at the same, uh, you, you really have to understand this is again, the programmer me coming out. You have to understand your audience. You have to know, you know, uh, cause I don't want to recommend something that someone's gonna have a bad time with. Like, that's not fun for me. Sure. Um, I want people to enjoy it. And I know that there's like, I'm not going to re- recommend this to my parents. Like I'll recommend it to, I'll recommend a lot of things to them, you know, but you know, or, you know, my little sister or, or something like that, but people who are fans of this type of film. Um, and there are, there are lots of us. Um, I absolutely recommend. Um, one thing that I've been fortunate, uh, to to grow as a like a sort of community uh, around myself with with the Fantastic Fest team, some of whom are no longer there, but they've been there for a long time. Is that those guys are truly passionate about films from all levels, like at every budget level, you know, from something like this that costs ten thousand dollars up to m- big multi million dollar movies, things that have disappeared into the ether. I was talking uh, to uh, to Donato about one of the alternate choices that I was. Uh, thinking about is a, a little Italian movie from 2000 that I don't think ever got an actual release at all. It ended up like on a Shriek show DVD uh, back in the day. Um, it's called the Mummy Theme Park. But uh, there are there are just a ton of films out there that that no one's uh, giving a, a, an opportunity to. No one is has been given the opportunity to to discover. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, this film is currently streaming on Tubi which is the home of all things wonderful. Like Tubi, Tubi is, 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 is a, a boon to the universe, mm-hmm. but it's also really hard to find stuff on Tubi. Uh, it's, it's got the same kind of, you know, algorithm thing going where once you watch one thing, it'll show you a bunch of other stuff that you, uh, you might also enjoy. I, I go on Tubi pretty much every, every Saturday morning after my, to start my weekend, I go up, have a cup of coffee and put something trashy on Tubi. Um, and, Father's Day has never come up my list, which is crazy because I watch all kinds of stuff that is a lot like Father's Day. Um, and I think, you know, it's not part of that sort of curated collection that people need to have in order to uh, to really give a film a rebirth or, you know, that kind of thing. Well, let me ask you a smart question about that then. Because I think we can locate this as sort of like, or at least the early days of Astron 6, we talked about like the trends and where it fit within like resurgence of DIY exploitation. Do you get the sense that there is that that when you're thinking about horror fans, when you think about the community, it almost feels like we did that and it felt kind of like a blip or an aberration, right? Like things like Tire or Hobo with the Shotgun, you know, this kind of mode of films. I it doesn't seem like something that we have um, 
as as horror fans sort of stood by. I don't know how to articulate it any better, right? Like it just sort of seemed like it was like, oh, we did that for a couple of years and then we're done with it, right? So do you think that makes it um, harder to sort of, we're always talking about like the idea of new canons on the podcast because that's the only way that any of this stuff ever gets discovered is if it ends up in some sort of formal or informal canon. When you think about like exploitation 80s type cinema, do you think that that we're just sort of like, I don't want to say embarrassed, embarrassed is a strong word, but do you sort of like, is it all sort of like, yeah, we had like, a minute there where that's all we want to do and we're over it. Does it make it harder for you to try and like elevate this and bring this into other conversations? Does it feel so much locked into like we spent five years making every ridiculous movie that we could think of and then we're, we're done and we got that out of our system. I mean, I think that there's still, there's still something of that sort of uh, bubbling under the surface. If you look at the works of like, uh, let's say uh, Begus, Joe, Joe Begus, right? that's sort of on the same level. Like it's, it's the same kind of vibe, you know, your Christmas, bloody Christmas bliss, that kind of stuff is, is in the same ballpark as something like father's day. But what I think uh, uh, a big concern, and this is, this is very important that there uh, father's day is not a politically correct film. And these days uh, it would be torn to shreds if it were a new release. Um, It's only sort of in, in retrospect that, that, yeah, there's a lot of really bad jokes and really bad taste. Um, but I don't know that it would be like something that a film festival would select now hmm. because you're trying to put your best foot forward. You're trying to show where where cinema is going. Like that's kind of the, the idea. Um, and trying to have like that kind of discussion about a film like Father's Day, uh, which is, you know, there are homophobic jokes. There are, you know, there's all kinds of things in there that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't pass muster nowadays. Um, Makes it a bit of a challenge to, to like publicly come out and champion like I'm doing now um, and put forth as like, this is something that should be, you know, canonized uh, this type of film, no matter how much I love it. Like I understand and see that it's going to piss a lot of people off, you know, so it's it's a tough one. Yeah, and I mean like, you know, maybe maybe an unpopular opinion here as well, but like part of the idea that like yeah, like I I own rubber. Like you're talking about rubber, right? Monica? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I yeah, said no, tire, no. but rubber was the movie. Yeah, yeah. But like exactly, like I own rubber. Like I love that film and I have tried to champion it a bunch, but I think there is less of a degree that we believe of horror fans, let's say, of discovering new stuff versus watching the same things over and over again and that's not judgment like we like our comfort you know people just want to watch the halloween movies over and over again the friday 13th movies over and over again but like i have noticed over the years of doing this you know like going to film festivals and finding these little movies and tweeting about them and talking about them those are the tweets that get like the least engagement for me like like and like statistically before twitter died and all that shit when people actually did engage and stuff like that um like yeah, before there, we all went to spoutable or blue sky right, or, or blue sky whatever, or whatever yeah like whatever whatever the flavor by the time this episode is released it'll be something else but but yeah like there was there was this thing where like you see i would see people tweet out like oh my god like you know there's so many indie movies that don't get discovered blah blah, blah. like we need to talk about those and then like it's just me in the corner and like other people obviously not just me it is a large collection of us but you know us in the corner going like hey here's here's that movie that you, you want me to recommend i'm doing it here it is and then like a year later, that same person is like, oh, my God, I just watched this movie. No one was talking about it. And I'm like, OK, so we're kind of just talking in circles here. Like, I, I don't really I don't know. It, it's a hard thing to kind of judge of like, 
is there a larger market for these more obscure, smaller movies than we believe? Or is it us just going out and discovering them and then they just keep doing what they're doing because the interest isn't as largely there as we believe it is? I do wonder, too, if the fandom is evolving a little bit, right? Because, like, I think of, you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, either listeners or the people on the call, but I think of us as, as pretty pro- a pretty progressive group of film critics that are aware not only of the context a film is released in, but also how it should be received today, right? Like, we do nuanced readings, just as you did, Josh, about, like, yes, this is important because of this, but also when we read it through a contemporary lens, we should be aware of X, Y, and Z. Like nuanced readings are, you know, not everything exists in the past or the present. It exists in both places simultaneously. But I also feel like a movie like Father's Day is naturally going to probably appeal to an audience that isn't going to be as, you know, and this is a gross oversimplification. I don't mean to do it. But like, you know, what it offers in terms of just excess is probably more appealing to people who like and respond to movies that are just excessive and that's always that's that's always a, a bit of a, a negotiated reading, right? Because like, you know, if you index too hard on like New York City exploitation horror from like the seventies and eighties, I don't want to say that says anything about you, but that's that's kind of where you go to again and again. Then the kind of stuff that we want to champion now that's different stuff, or even Sovam that we talked about in our last episode, which is a different type of exploitation film. Um, you know, you might not approach those in the same way. So it's 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 an interesting also like sort of self-selection i feel like we're talking a lot about the reception of the movie and not itself but you know i think it's one of those like it does what it says on the tin right like you know if you're going to enjoy this movie based on a photo any any fucking screenshot from this movie is going to tell you anything that you need to know about it and so i think it's interesting to think about who responds to that who reacts to that and why oh absolutely um you know with with father's day it is it is a film that you know in spite of my my reservations about the company it is it is you know for a, a trauma audience like that's the kind of mm-hmm. people that are going to appreciate uh, the film uh, on a, on its on a base level you know and one of the things that I that I find challenging about horror and the quote unquote horror community is that community is a real strong word like it's it's right. it's loose knit at at best. Um, and there are, you know, for every, for every, you know, uh, well-read, you know, thinking man's critic, uh, that is approaching horror from, from that perspective, there are a bunch of people living under rocks in their, or in their mom's basements, uh, watching just the worst trash that you could possibly think of. And, you know, I like to think there's room for both. Uh, I don't necessarily want to align myself with, with that type of, of film fan, because, while I might appreciate it and enjoy it, it's 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 one of those things I feel bad because I'm like you're 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 liking this the wrong way. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. you like this thing, I like this thing, but I see this thing and uh, I see what it is and I see what it does. And there are you know, anytime you go to a horror convention, it's 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 always readily apparent that you know maybe I'm just not like these people, you know, uh, which is fine by me you know but it's it's the kind of thing where i i love the film and i i i wish i wish that astron six were still together doing active work but you know you can't so you can't make a living making ten thousand dollar movies with five guys you right. know that's that's not realistic and so that's why kostansky is now like a successful director uh jerry big gillespie is also working in arts you know uh, those two guys are probably the most consistently working um and they're behind the scenes guys you know, um, I, 
honestly, uh, rewatching this today, found myself actually pretty impressed with the performances. You know, yeah. uh, uh, Adam Brooks, who who plays Ahab, uh, is a legitimately good actor. You know, and he was he was the father in in PG also. And there are moments where he's not he's not trying to sell a joke. You know, when he's talking about his his sister. Um, and how much he loves her uh, in a different way later on. Um, but like, those are good dramatic performances. Like those are, he does, he puts in good work. Connor Sweeney uh, is, is just funny as hell. You know, and he's, he's always up for that joke. The, the dad, the dad in the coffin joke was a particularly good mm-hmm. moment for him. Um, but, you know, I just find myself wishing that, this film is one specific type of film from them. If you go back and look at the shorts that they made, they're all over the place. You know, there's yeah. uh, beach comedies. There's more of this uh, stop motion stuff. There's straight up grindhouse with no humor in some of those early shorts. Um, they, they're not a horror collective, which I think is something that they've kind of been pigeonholed into. It's just that that's a way it's the best way for them to utilize all of their unique skills Um you know, with Kostansky being the stop motion whiz and the effects genius that he is, uh, you can go back and look at all the, if you go back and, cause I went back and watched all the shorts uh, that are available and you can tell which ones are Kostansky specials. Uh, and this is something that one of my fellow programmers at, uh, at Fantastic Fest, Peter Kaplowski, who also does the, the midnight section at uh, Midnight Madness at Toronto. Uh, he's been, banging the drum for Astron 6 since, you know, Laser Ghost. Um, he's an executive producer on 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 a couple of their films. On, on Manborg, he's an executive producer. And, um, you know, it's... I wish that there were a way for them to, you know, maybe just, like, get the band back together and, you know, do another big sort of thing and make it maybe not horror. Like, the editor is fine. It's probably my least favorite of their works. Um, but, like give them the opportunity to do something, you know, where they can all come back together for a decent paycheck because they do have lives to live, you know, and the kids and families and all this stuff now that they didn't have, you know, maybe 15 years ago when they started. Um, I, I, I want the world to think about Astron six, you know, that's, that's kind of where I come, uh, where I come down on this. Well, I mean, and, and again, it is spectacular, as a special effects showcase with no money and what you can pull off. And, you know, we're talking about, um, Deadstream. Like, again, like think about something like Deadstream and think about what, uh, that collective did the winters, uh, what they did going into the VHS, uh, segment they did. And there is so much parallel there of making a universe and making something out of literally nothing. Like let's talk about styrofoam and green screens and junkyard, you know, props and things of that nature. And to pull that off and make a movie out of that to me is just, again, like so impressive. We're, if we're talking about Father's Day, like we are talking about stuff like Hobo with a Shotgun or things of that level. Like that is that is the kind of grindhouse homage. And that is where, like, again, I totally understand why people would not want to watch this movie. It, it comes with a trigger warning and that is not like making fun of it at all. It is absolutely correct. Um, and if it is not your style, it's not your style. But it, like at the end of the day, like it is a very good satire of grindhouse cinema. Like what it's doing is putting out what's been put out already. It is trying to do a commentary on it. I do believe there is a version of this movie that isn't produced by trauma that I think is better. And that is not me even saying fuck trauma, like not at all. I'm just 
just knowing what they lean into and knowing what they probably support did not benefit the film in certain aspects and getting past that though it's it is just fun to watch the practical is so good uh the way that it doesn't shy away from again male nudity in a genre that a hundred percent has shied away from male nudity and supported another one you know there's a lot to comment on there and that's all the good stuff about it but you know <laughs> it's it's a hard recommend it's a hard one to go out there and be like everyone watch father's day so like that's that's where the hard selling point is because i feel like we've been talking about just the point of history in which it came out and why it wasn't received and stuff of that nature but you know this is a movie at the end of the day and i do think the performances are very good i love adam brooks yeah. i think adam brooks is great across the board even in i agree with the editor it's probably my least astron six uh favorite but adam brooks sells the hell out of it and so if I'm going to sign up for, you know, an exploitation, mocking, not mockumentary, but like an exploitation uh, satire and exploitation comedy that is playing with this genre. Yeah, I'm not going to shy away from Father's Day because I know what I'm getting into. And that's the big thing. Just know what you're getting into with one of these. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I honestly thought it was Justin Benson for like a minute and I knew it wasn't. But there were times where I was like, he's really good. Justin, he looks like Justin Benson. It's not Justin Benson, but uh, yeah, it, it, the performance is really good. There is, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about the film. I, I would love to talk about the, you know, when it switches to found footage inexplicably about two thirds of the way through, I would love to talk about the fact that like the least likely movie that I've ever seen to fucking pull sound cues from, you know, the mission, Ennio Morricone score from the mission, which is like the most wild decision I've like, I, for a $10,000 budget, that's probably where all of that budget went was just on licensing rights and a bad MIDI cover. Um, uh, there's just, there's so much we could say. I recognize that we're kind of at the end of our time here. So our last question that we would normally ask our guests, Josh, is, um, you know, what do you think this movie needs to do to be rediscovered, to be unforgotten? And I'm going to let, like, vamp as hard as you want. You want to do like a short little diatribe on a piece of the film we haven't had an opportunity to talk about. I encourage you to do that because I want everybody to be able to like highlight and talk about the thing that they liked. Cause I know the conversation took us away from some of the practical stuff that we might've talked about. I still think it was a worthwhile place to go, but I don't want to lose sight of like those elements that really catch our eyes. So where do you think this movie finds its future, Josh? And, and, and how does it get there? Well, I do, I do in the, in the sense uh, uh, that I'm going to vamp for just a moment here. Yes. It's, it's a very, very clever, cleverly written film. And that's one thing that I don't think because there's so much visually happening throughout uh, the film in terms of effects, in terms of, uh, or even, even orally with the, the music, the, the synth score in this thing is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's just, I don't think it gets the appreciation for being as cleverly written as it is, you know, the fact that they named the guy Ahab and he's chasing his white whale. Like all these things come in that you don't necessarily think about as it's happening because, well, like I said, that guy just sliced his dick in half and he's chewing on someone else's here in a minute. And he, all these dads are getting raped. Like there's all these things happening that it's it's tough to like slow it down and and, and pick out those moments that are just solid, you know. And the, the fact that this movie just does everything. Like it does everything. And in the last 10 minutes when, when they're in hell and it just all of a sudden becomes this giant stop motion showcase um, is, is just, it's, it's wonderful and it makes no sense. And it's, and then the final shot right before the credits where we see what has happened to the three lead characters as they tried to save the world from, you know, the, the fuck manicus demon um, is just the icing on the cake. It's, it's, 
it's just so much fun. Um, and I kind of feel bad for loving it as much as I do, but I don't feel bad at all because it's fucking great. Um, I do think that this would need to be, you know, I don't see why this is not playing, you know, more sort of midnighter things, terror Tuesday sort of things, that kind of, uh, uh, thing. Maybe it's too new. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's not quite old enough to be rediscovered or revisited. Um, because I've had that issue before when, when doing retrospective stuff is like, oh, well, this film is only, only 10 years old or only seven years old or whatever the case may be. And so it's not quite a retro yet. Um, you know, does it need to be part of a curated collection on Shutter? You know, I know it's, I think it's been on Shutter here. I know it's been on Shutter overseas. It's not on Shutter now. Um, but if it were part of a curated collection of those kind of films, like you were saying, you know, with Hobo with a Shotgun, another film that I love dearly that is just mean as shit, um, maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe Joe Bob Briggs. I mean, hell, there's, there, there's so much nudity in this. That's right up his alley. You know, this is, this is a Joe Bob Briggs movie uh, through and through. Um, you know, I think, I think that's what it's going to take, you know, and I, I hope that it gets that kind of appreciation. And I hope, you know, that if, if that sort of thing happens, it happens collectively to the Astron 6 oeuvre. Like, I, I believe that there's a lot there. You know, the shorts are, are all fantastic. And I don't think enough people have seen uh, most of them to see the sort of range that those guys had. And it's, it, the features that they've made have all been in this sort of horror vein. Like I said, Manborg is horror-ish. Um, editors, uh, Giallo. Um, but that's just because that's the best way, like I said, to utilize the talents of the individuals. Um, but if you go back and look, you know, they've got a hard bodies uh, spoof and cool guys, which is fantastic. They've got, you know, punch out, which is about this guy who, who just loves getting punched in the face and like tries to get everyone to punch him in the face the whole time. You know, Laser Ghost 2, which we mentioned before, which, you know, one of my favorite gags in Laser Ghost, which you can go find on YouTube, is the fact that laser is spelled two different ways in the title, once with a Z and once with an S, which I find absolutely fucking hilarious. Um, you know, you've got Divorced Dad, which is their cable access uh, YouTube series, which got partially banned from, from YouTube because they had an episode called Mysis that was about, that they thought was an ISIS tool or something like that. Um, you know, the people who know, know. Like, but I think that there are more people out there that would be, you know, appreciative of what Astron Six and the the guys behind that that team had to offer. So put it put together a whole collection, like do a whole shuttered yeah. channel of Astron Six, just running twenty four hours a day. Donato, yeah. So I'm going to go the route of we talk about Canuck exploitation, uh, the Canadian you know exploitation genre, and we talk about it in terms of the earlier days, My Bloody Valentine. Black Christmas, things of that nature, uh, the, the movies that started it. But I feel like we should do an update. I feel like there should be a collection of newer films that definitely fit that vibe. Uh, and I think, you know, do Father's Day, do Lowell Dean's uh, Wolf Cop, do Hope Jason Eisner's Hobo with a Shotgun. Like there are so many movies out there that are keeping that classification alive that, you know, I think someone else referred to it as like Maple Sea or Massacre kind of movies. Like Canadian exploitation is insane at times and if you really do want to find a way to bring father's day back and find a way to get it in front of theaters again and i think that's a great little bill to do and there's a few more movies out there like there there are jesse cook i believe is somebody else out there like doing movies like monster brawl and other weirdo uh, canadian horror films so there are so many newer films to pick from 
that you can do a Canadian exploitation retrospective for. And I think that would be a great way to do exactly what Josh is saying as well. Like bring some of these Astron movies back. Like let's shine a light on the new new crop. Because again, as horror film critics and people who go to festivals, conversations always skew towards the old. As much as we want to talk about the new, as much as we want to talk about what's happening now, conversations always go back to the Fridays, the Chuckies, the things of that nature. And I mean, do I always jump into a Chucky conversation? Of course. Yeah, I'm not going to not do that. But it'd be cool to start talking about the new and you know, that's what we do. We try to talk about the new, we try to get that in front of new audiences. So maybe that's, that's one more way of doing it, you know, find a way to put those movies together and do a night of whether it's shutter or whether it's a, even just a local screening somewhere. Pick even if one more person finds this movie, it's a, mm. it's a success. Yeah. And I'll just echo what you said, Josh, cause that feels right to me. I think it's too new and I think it's specifically too new in the context of its vamping on a mode of cinema that's still, or at least has been for the past few years, still very popular. Um, 80s nostalgia is starting to die down because nostalgia works on a 30-year cycle. So we're getting into the 90s. We're starting to see movies that are openly playing with concepts and visuals and ideas from the mid to late 90s now. But you know, a lot of people are still like in that 80s horror mentality. And so a, a more contemporary film that is riffing on a movie that is still in flavor um, it just it needs a little bit of distance. Probably in, in 20 years, it'll be interesting to see if people are familiar with something like Father's Day, but don't know the movies necessarily that it's ripping on or, or, or riffing. If like that little bit of distance kind of gives this primacy um, in our look back at genre cinema. And for my own vamping, I just I want to I want to give a shout out to um, to Matthew Kennedy as Father John Sullivan in this film. Uh, Josh, you were talking about performances. He has maybe my two favorite scenes in the film, which is uh, pulling a gun in heaven to blackmail his way into hell. Um, and also shouting at a resurrecting character to get an abortion um, so that she doesn't come back with the spawn of Satan. It's just like the Catholic, the ex-Catholic in me, love that shit. Like all the religious stuff in this movie, absolute slam dunk uh, for the ex-Catholic in me. And I was very, very happy with that. So there we have it. That is how you go see this film. This is how you go see more movies like this. This is where we figured it out. So uh, when eventually... They do the Criterion release of Father's Day. I'm going to recommend Josh Rotato write the essay. Uh, you heard it here first. Make it happen. Let's uh, do it. Josh, I want to say thank you so much for coming on for this episode. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything that might be in the pipeline here at the end, too. So if you've got things happening, how do people follow you on social media? How do they stay on top of recommendations you might have? Uh, you can follow me every, well, everywhere. Yeah. Letterboxd, Instagram, uh, Twitter, all at Hateful Josh, a name I chose a very long time ago, and I'm trying to distance myself from, but it's better than the one I had before that. Um, for lots of uh, movie recommendations, uh, bold opinions, uh, not as much hate as there used to be, but unless it's uh, political, in which case I hate a lot of people. Sure. Uh, living in Texas, you know, it's a hazard. Um, you can also follow Potentate Films on uh, Twitter for updates on screenings that we are uh, we are a part of right now. Uh, I am working on the touring retrospective of Roger Mooley's work. Uh, we're doing it a little bit at a time, but it's going to start picking up here uh, in the next couple of months. So people will want to will want to know when they can go see Ega on the big screen because that is a treat. Um, so that's that's pretty much it. That's, those are the places you can find me. Excellent. Donato, uh, what social platforms do people look for you on these days? Pretty much sticking to the uh, the core at this point. As you said, Monogle, I feel like there's a new one every day. And as much as I sign up for them, I never use them again. So once we figure out if Twitter will ever die and we pick a new one, I will pick a new one. But until then, 
You can follow me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. As always, you're going to see my articles, IGN, Slash Film, Blade Disgusting, Fangoria, down the list. Whatever I do, I'll tweet it out. That's all I got for you this time. Awesome. You can follow me at Matt Monagle on Twitter until the bitter fucking end. Um, I would encourage you to check out, you know, if you haven't already, I'm sure you have, but check out www.certifiedforgotten.com to see some of the really cool essays uh, that we've published, thoughts about some of the films that if you like our episodes are going to be right in line with the kind of things you're going to want to learn more about. And we, as of recently, are now on Letterboxd as an HQ. Um, So we're trying to make sure we update each of the movies that we talk about on the podcast and each of the films that are featured on the website, we're updating with a little bit of content there. So if Letterbox is your trustworthy place for film information, you know, it used to be one of the nicest things about Twitter is you would just insert, you know, a movie title and then switch to filter by follows and see all the people that were talking about this movie you just watched much less reliable than it used to be. So if you're on Letterboxd, um, in addition to these fine gentlemen, do also check out Certified Forgotten because we're there too. Also, if you like the podcast, like and comment. We don't do that enough. We need to be better at promoting ourselves. <laughs> and we yes. like the, the comments we've been getting have been very nice. So we need to remind the people, if you do like us, comments go a huge way. And uh, we appreciate everyone who has. And if you have not, why not? Give just five minutes, you know? We don't have a tug of ego, but more than two reviews a year would be kind of cool. Let's uh, let's cross that threshold. That would be neat. Just for us. Do it, do, it, uh, do it for Matt's. That's all we have to ask. Josh, you'll be back. Because I'm going to make you come back because I'm going to make you pick uh, an Indian film to talk about one of the ones that might have been in there um, because I really want to learn from you. So basically, I just want to like put the spotlight on you and let you go. Um, but thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks for giving us Father's Day. I, it was the, the dumbest movie with the best conversation, which I feel like is always a slam dunk for us. So thanks so much, bud. Thank you. It was lovely to be here. Donato, take us off. Maybe now you'll take me seriously. <laughs> This is stupid. <laughs>